0: The city of Chicago, as all of you know, has an extremely high number of shootings and murders every day, and especially on the weekends. And it's nothing to hear reports of 40 shootings over a weekend and multiple deaths that take place. Now, many of those victims that are involved in those uh, shootings and murders are innocent people happening to be in the wrong place at the wrong time. But many of them also have long records and uh, have spent time in prison and so on. Interesting thing is, as I listen to the reporters share, I have never yet heard a family member of any victim say, he lived a wicked life and he deserved to die. That was his due. They've all said, they were such wonderful people, nobody deserved to die. At a time of suffering, we always ask, what did I do or what did that person do to deserve death? I think we've probably all asked that question at one time or another. What did I do to deserve this? I'm suffering. I'm hurting. My family is falling apart. My whole life is falling apart. What did I do? And being a member of God's family doesn't absolve us from facing all those pains and sufferings that... Uh, come into our lives. In January, we looked at the first two chapters of Job, and we saw how he responded very graciously to all the trouble that he had. This morning, we're going to hear the rest of the story. So I need for you to buckle up tightly, hang on, and we're going to tr- finish the rest of the Job this morning. So if you brought your lunch, you're in good shape. Uh, otherwise... <laughs> Uh, yeah, now it won't be that, but uh, it, it's a lot to cover, so it'll be a very, very brief report. I hope you read it. I hope you read the book of Job and have read it recently. If you haven't read it recently, read through the book of Job. Just refresh your memory on how Job wrestled with, with the question of why did this happen? So let's go. A quick review on, on the uh, first part of Job. Nothing is known about Job outside of this book, other than the fact that Ezekiel and James make a very brief reference to him, but they consider him a real person. Most likely, Job lived during the time of the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, somewhere between 2000 and 1000 BC. He lived in the land of Uz, a land somewhere east of Canaan, on the edge of the desert, possibly northern Saudi Arabia or southern Jordan. He lived in an area where he could farm, and yet he was close to a town or a city where he was an important man in the community. The book of Job does not tell us whether he was an Israelite or a Gentile. What we do know is found in the first few verses of the book. And as I said, we're going to go through quickly, so I'm going to make reference to a lot of references Uh, We won't have time to read them all and look at them all, but make note of them and go back and look at those again if you could. But Job chapter 1 says, This man was blameless and upright. He feared God and shunned evil. He had seven sons and three daughters, and he owned 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, and 500 donkeys, and had a large number of servants. He was the greatest man among the people of the East." We know that there was a conversation between God and Satan. Uh, but interestingly enough, after chapter 2, verse 7, we hear nothing more about Satan. The conversations that take place in the rest of the book have nothing to do with Satan anymore, uh, at least not directly. But he left Satan left Job sitting on an ash heap, scraping the boils of, because of the itch. That's where we see him. But as we move forward now, I want us to remember one statement, that even in our suffering, God never lets go. God never lets go. So first of all, let's see that God may send friends to give advice during the time of suffering. We begin with Job's wife in chapter 2. Job's wife, is who is not mentioned much other than this portion, Uh, this is all we know about her, She had endured the same tragedies that Job did. She lost all the wealth of the family. She lost her sons. She lost her daughters. She suffered as Job did. And she didn't say a word from our records. She was silent. That was the first round. And then when Job was personally attacked by by Satan and was physically suffering, she couldn't deal with it anymore. She had to speak up, and she talks to him in, in, in a tone that's uh, very uh, demeaning in a sense. But in chapter 2, verse 9, she says, Are you still maintaining your integrity? And I can just imagine the tone of her voice as she says that. But now remember, God has said twice or three times earlier that the integrity of Job was what God admired And now she is saying, is he, you still hanging on to that? Why didn't you just curse God and die? Both of those are imperatives. Both of those are commands. Just do it. Curse God and die. I don't think she wanted to get rid of Job. I think she just was so taken up with his suffering and pain that she wanted him to have that relief. And a suicide, in a sense, would, would take care of that, and she would be uh, not having to watch him suffer again. Now she's gone. That's it for Job's wife. But that was the advice she gave Job. She came along and gave him that. God sent some friends in, in the end of chapter 2. It says three friends came. We have Eliphaz, we have Bildad, and Sovar, uh, men whose names are not found anywhere else in Scripture. Their communities are not mentioned. Nobody knows where they came from. Nobody knows how long it took for them to get there. Very likely, it was possibly months from the time Job first became ill to the time the friends arrived. Remember, there was no internet. There were no emails. There were no telephones. News traveled slowly. And these men came from uh, a distance. They weren't neighbors, apparently, to uh, Job. Job said, I have been allotted months of futility when the friends came. So it was a considerable period of time. They came together uh, as because they knew each other. We're told that they came together uh, by agreement. That means by making an appointment. So they ap- made an appointment with each other to come together as friends. And they were going to come and visit Job. What great friends. I mean, when, when we're suffering and hurting, we want people, generally. We want people to be there and they, we want them to come. And they came to around to Job. They knew Job well enough that they could come and share with him in his time of need. They shared the same values and traditions and religious views that Job did. They were of the same uh, cultural background. There's a sense here in which we know that they were God-fearers, and they may not have been believers in the Old Testament sense, but possibly were. Somehow they had heard of God, the God of the universe, Yahweh, and they were followers and believers in Him. We're told that when they came, they saw Him, and they were horrified because they hardly recognized the skeleton of a man sitting on the ash heap, scraping the boils, on his body. Now we know that the fourth friend joined them late, later, but we don't know when he came. So we want to take a very quick look at the speeches that the men gave, and then I want to pick it up and, and look at Job's responses. We won't do it uh, as Job speaks, but we'll pick it up at the end and just kind of summarize his speaking. They sat in silence for seven days. And friends, you need that sometimes. The last thing you need is a whole list of Bible verses when you're hurting, because you probably know every verse. You need somebody to come and sit with you. And they sat there. They just sat with him on the ash heap. That's a friendship. And then when the seven days were up, then uh, Job begins the conversation, but then we want to look at the men's speeches first. In the first round, there were really three rounds. They spoke and then Job responded. They spoke again, Job responded. The third time they spoke and Job responded again. In the first round, they established the theme based on the traditional view of their culture. Suffering is a consequence of sin and sowing trouble. Good people don't suffer. That is what they knew. That is what tradition had taught them. If you follow God, if you're a good person, if you live a rich righteous life, you don't suffer. You will live a good life. If you, if you are suffering, there's something wrong with you. You've sinned. Confess. Any suffering that you do is a result of God's judgment. Bildad says, God will not reject the one who is blameless. He was not there when God had said, two or three times that Job was blameless so that's not the issue he was blameless although the friends were struggling with this because in their thinking in their theology God only punishes the wicked the righteous don't suffer but here is their friend Job who is suffering desperately and so you can't be blameless if you're in that condition Job the only thing that's going to help you is to repent. Repent. Job was not about to repent. Job did not want to repent because he maintained his innocence. But his situation indicated that he was sinful, that he was wicked. Eliphaz says in chapter 15, what is man that he can be pure? Or he who is born of a woman, that he can be righteous? Bildad thought that Job's attitude was not a very good attitude. In fact, he, he, in chapter 18, Bill says, why do you regard, Why are we regarded as cattle and considered stupid in your anger? Uh, just remember, these, came, these were friends who came to bring compassion and comfort to Job. This is not the way you generally speak to your friends when you're there for comfort and encouragement. Zophar in chapter 20 reminds Job that he should know that from the very beginning of time, The wicked may enjoy life for a little while, but soon, God's justice finds them. Just as Moses says in Numbers, be sure your sin will find you out. Eventually God will get you, Job, and he got you. You're in trouble. You are not righteous. And again and again, the three friends hit Job with words like in chapter 22, is it for your piety that he rebukes you? And brings charges against you? Is not your wickedness great? Are not your sins endless? Boy, they really knew how to encourage Job. They go on in in verse 25. If even the moon is not bright and the stars are not pure in his eyes, how much less a mortal who is but a maggot, a human being who is only a worm? Job, you're in trouble. You're not. You're not righteous. You're not much more than a maggot or a worm. They threw in a few comments about God's mercy. Very few, but a few of those. But finally, in chapter 32, verse 1, we read, these three men stopped answering Job because he was righteous in his own eyes. Have you ever tried to talk to somebody about where they're at, and they just continue to maintain their innocence and their righteousness, and finally you just throw up your hands and say, I'm done. There's no more talk, No use talking to you. It's like talking to a wall, so I'm going to quit. So they did. Now the fourth friend speaks up. Chances are he was probably the youngest of the group, and he's waited until the other men have kind of had their say, and now it's time for him to speak. And uh, he, he was struggling because he hadn't heard the wisdom he was waiting to hear from these men. He realized that God was not silent. He says, for God does speak, now one way, now another, though not no one perceives it. He says, it is unbelievable and unthinkable that God would be wrong. So if God isn't wrong, who's wrong? Job, you're wrong. Something's happened. You're not in right relationship with God. You need to undergo more testing, he says in chapter 34. You're still acting rebellious. So the summary of all this is that either God is wrong or Job is wrong. You can't have both of them right because of the situation they're in. And since Job is suffering so intensely, he must be the one. It is interesting to note that defending their theological belief is more important than the friendship. Job is now kind of a side piece in their de- theological discussion. So be careful, don't, don't, don't let that happen on our lives as we talk about theology and we forget what, what it's all about and that's our relationship with the people. But they seem to be very angry in their words. And one commentator says that it's possible they were angry because they were afraid that if they were wrong in their thinking, then the disasters that happened to Job could happen to them. The righteous do suffer. The righteous do go through difficult times, and they didn't like that idea, and so they were angry at the thought that maybe they could be the next ones. So they had to prove themselves right. You know, Job maintained his, his innocence, and what happens when you can't win your argument? You get angry, and you shout louder, because you can't win. That's how you're going to win, and that's what these men were doing. So we find that they gave advice, but that advice is not always helpful. So now we look at Job and Job's response. He spoke first. He wished he had never been born. In chapter 3, verse 3, he says, May the day of my birth perish, and the night that said, a boy is conceived. Warren Wiersbe says, Note that Job said a child was conceived, not a mass of protoplasm or a thing. He was a person from conception. And Job says, oh, I wish I had never been conceived. But since I was conceived, I wish I had never been born. But what, since I was born, I wish I could die. And you see, he's, he's really ready to give up on all of this. And he's cursing the day of his birth. But remember and notice, he does not curse God. But he does have an interesting thought in chapter 6, verse 9. I wish he, that is God, would crush me. I wish he would reach out his hand and kill me. At least I would have the comfort in this. Despite the pain, I have not denied the words of the Holy One. God, kill me before I say something I regret. That's his plea here. God considered, Job considered God merciless and felt like God had defeated him and crushed him. In chapter 16, he says, all was well with me, but he shattered me. He seized me by the neck and he crushed me. He made me his target. His archers surround me. Without pity, he pierces my kidneys and spills my gall on the ground. Again and again, he bursts upon me. He rushes at me like a warrior. And he goes on. And in a number of other speeches, that he talks about how God has crushed him and alienated his family from him, and everybody's ridiculing him. And as a result, there is no more happiness in him. Chapter 7, my days are swifter than a weaver's shuttle, and they come to an end without hope. Remember, O God, that my life is but a breath. My eyes will never see happiness again. And maybe some of you have been at that point. Maybe you are there right now. You think, there's just going to be no more happiness. It's done. I'm suffering. I'm in pain. But Job was really wrestling with this idea of the day that the innocent don't suffer, and yet he knew he was innocent, and he was suffering you know that'll give you a theological headache if you're trying to put those two together it doesn't fit if it's true that the wicked are punished by god why is it then that the wicked around him were living so well and in chapter 21 he goes through a list of things that the right that the wicked are enjoying where's the punishment in fact at the end of that passage in chapter 20, 21 verse 16 the, the righteous kind of said god get lost i mean the wicked god get lost we don't need you we don't want you and despite that god was blessing them or at least so it appeared and this doesn't fit job is struggling he can't find god in chapter 23 he says but if i go to the east he's not there if i go to the west i don't find him if, I, if when I, he is at work in the north, I do not see him. When he turns to the south, I catch no glimpse of him. Jo- Job is saying, God, I don't see you. I don't find you. Probably some of your minds went to Psalm 139, where the psalmist says, it doesn't matter where I go. I can't get out of God's sight. I can't get out of God's presence. What a contrast there is in those two men. But Job couldn't find him. Yet in spite of all this, Job very quickly reaffirmed his hope in God. Chapter 19, I know that my Redeemer lives, and and that in the end he will stand on the earth. And after that, after my skin has been destroyed, yet in my flesh I will see God. I myself will see him with my own eyes, I and not another, how my heart yearns within me. The famous American psychiatrist Carl Menninger called hope the major weapon against the suicide uh, impulse. Hopeless fee- people feel there's nothing left to live for. But, friends, if you and I have a relationship with Jesus Christ, Peter says we have a living hope. We have a living hope. Why? Because it is rooted in Jesus Christ. And that's where Job's hope was. He said, I, I, I can't see God. I don't know where he is. I feel abandoned. But I still know I have a God, and my hope is in him. I, I love those words in First Peter. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. Job recognized that God was sovereign and in control of all the nations. He says in chapter 12, he makes the nations great and destroys them. He enlarges nations and disperses them. I've got news for you. Donald Trump couldn't make America great. Nothing against Donald Trump, but Donald Trump couldn't do it. Why? Because that's God's domain. God is the one who makes nations great he brings them down, and he brings them up. We know that God's advice is always right. Job, Job recognized the advice from his friends wasn't right, but now God speaks. The New Living Translation says in chapter 38, Then the Lord answered Job from the whirlwind, "Whirlwind, Who is this that questions my wisdom in such ignorant words? It was a rebuke to Job, who kind of thought he, he still had it. He, he still had, it, even though he was innocent, he was somewhat arrogant in his innocence. And notice that God spoke out of a storm. It was a storm that took his 10 children, and now God speaks out of the storm. And Sometimes storms destroy, but often we hear God's voice in a storm. Now, when Job finally met God, God asked him 77 questions. And Job threw up his said, I don't know. That was his only response. I don't know. I don't have an answer to this. And the answers, the questions came rapidly as reading through chapters 38 and 39. Interestingly enough, God never addresses the tradition of the righteous uh, are blessed and the wicked suffer. God never answers that question. He never deals with that at all. He simply gives them an incredible nature lesson. In April, our family traveled to visit friends in Nebraska I saw two examples of God's incredible creation and His wisdom. Nebraska lies in the migrating pathway of the sandhill cranes. Beginning in mid-February through the end of April, between 450,000 and 700,000 sandhill cranes make their way from their um, wintering grounds in Texas and New Mexico and are on their way to their summer breeding grounds in Alaska. These sandhill cranes, which is about 80% of all the cranes in the world, congregate along an 80-mile stretch of the North Platte River. When you're driving down the highway, I-80, past those uh, cornfields that the cranes have come to migrate or to, to feast on, the sky is black with cranes. And apparently, uh, there are up to 20 million other birds that migrate through that same narrow stretch. God could ask Job, who put that instinct into those birds? Did you have anything to do with the migratory pattern of of birds? Implied, I did. (laughs) This is God's domain. The second example was a friend of ours took, took us into his pasture where he had at least a hundred newborn calves scattered throughout this large field. The mothers, along with expectant mothers, were all hovered or, or huddled around the uh, uh, feeding troughs, waiting for their feed. Our friend told us that if any, any one of those ca- newborn calves called out, the right mother would immediately know who it was, and, where, and they would head for their calf. They could pick out the cry of their, their baby. In, in the crowd. Job, did you have anything to do with that? Anytime you feel really impressed with your abilities and wisdom, read Job 38 and 39. Just read that and then go out into the country on a cloudless night, get out of your car and look at the sky. Just look at it. When we lived in Nebraska, I would, we lived out in the country. There were no lights, no city lights, no farm lights. We were that far out in the country. And often in the summertime, I would get out and walk in the morning before daylight when it was dark. Have you ever tried to walk in a straight line while looking up at the sky? It's not easy. I ended up in the ditch more often than not. But I couldn't take my eyes off of the Well, they estimate there's 200 billion galaxies out there plus billions and billions of stars. I couldn't get my eyes off of the beauty. It is incredible with God's God's creation. And the psalmist says, When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is mankind that you are mindful of them, human beings that you care for them, And Job in chapter 42 confesses his God was too small. He had had God in a little box. And God says, no, no, look up. Look at the animals. Look at the stars. Look at creation. And Job said, no, this is too wonderful for me. And following God's advice then for Job brought blessing when God said, okay, Job, now I want you to pray for your friends. I want you to pray for them. So what a reversal of roles as the friends had been after uh, Job to confess again and again and again. They've said confess or repent, Job. God said, Job, I want you to pray for your friends because they're wrong in, the, in their attitude and what they're doing and what they're thinking. And Job prayed. What a gentle spirit of Job. How many of us would have said, God, I don't know if I can do that after all the abuse I've had? First of all, from Satan and all of the tragedy I've had, and then now my friends have, you know, kicked me when I'm down. You want me to pray for them? God says, yeah, and Job did it. Job prayed for them, and we're told in chapter 42, verse 9, the Lord accepted Job's prayer. The Lord accepted Job's prayer. And God then began to restore Job's fortune. We obviously have to assume it was years to restore Job's fortunes for the cattle, for all the livestock. And once again, he ended up with 10 children. Everything else was doubled but the children. He, he He still had his 10 children. But that takes time. So it wasn't, now I've, I've prayed, okay, God, now reward me. No, God didn't do that. God took time to reward Job. So what? So what? Let's lie on the plane, as Pastor Jay would say. Let's come, come back down. First of all, when we have opportunities to minister to the sick and hurting, be careful what you say and do. Job's friend came to sympathize with him And comfort him yet every time they opened their mouths it was like pouring salt into an open wound someone has said that Christians are the only ones who shoot their wounded you know we we are so quickly prone to criticize and to offer advice about how they can get their life back together instead of just being quiet sometimes the best thing for us to do is to be silent You know, some of you have visited many sick and grieving and dying people. Just times just to sit and be quiet. I've done that many times with people. I may ask them if they want a cup of coffee, and I'll get them a cup of coffee. But I've sat there just quietly and let them speak if they want to speak. And if not, just be quiet. Job said in chapter 13, he said, if only you would be altogether silent, for you, that would be wisdom. (laughs) A little sarcasm thrown in there. If only you were quiet, then you'd be wise. They made long-winded speeches that never end. So be careful. Uh, Scripture and prayer are good, but maybe one verse and a 15, 20-second prayer, don't go on, don't. Don't give them the pastoral prayer that you hear Sunday morning sometimes. Don't give them a five-minute prayer. They don't need that. They need you to be there to encourage and comfort. Um, Ecclesiastes 3.7 says that there is a time to be silent and a time to speak. Yes, there are times we need to speak. But be careful with choosing that. The second thing to notice is that God uses our suffering for our good and his glory. Scripture tells us that God is at work in our lives to make us more like Christ, according to Romans chapter 8, and he can use even attacks by the devil to perfect us. A couple of weeks ago, Pastor Jay quoted Charles Spurgeon, and he said, if any other condition would have been better for you, divine love would have put you there. But couldn't, there was nothing better that God could do with your life but put you right where you are and your suffering and your pain, that is where God wants you, and he can use that for his good. In John, John chapter 9, the man was born blind so that the works of God could be manifested and displayed. You and I tend to think that it would be a great gift if we could uh, be in Job's position at the end of the book. You know, we, we want to jump from the chapter uh, 1, verse 3, to chapter 42. And we want, that's what we want in our lives. But God seldom works that way. Seldom God does it work that way. In Myanmar, we have been going through a very difficult couple of years. There's been a coup that has just devastated the country. Medical services are almost non-existent. COVID patients were all sent home to die to take care of themselves with their families. Freedoms were restricted. Yet on May 15th, eight children, eight of our Global Fingerprints children and two of their fathers were baptized because they reaffirmed their faith in Jesus Christ. And seven children are waiting for parental permission to be baptized because they turned their lives over to Christ. These are the stories I hear regularly from our program manager. God is working, and it's through those suffering days, those tough times when Sharon and I would love to go and visit, we can't. We can't get in. We might get in, but never get out, probably. Um, but but God is still at work, and he uses that for his glory. And thirdly, God does not leave us in a time of suffering. In the end, notice Job, the, the reading of chapter 42 that, that was read earlier. Job says, I we'll question you and you will answer. My ears have heard of you and now I see the whole picture of how it all came out and why. That's what we want to hear. That's what we want to hear in our lives. That's what Job wanted to hear. I got it all. It's all figured out. Job doesn't say that. He never says, oh, I see it. In fact, he never did find out why and what happened. But what does he say? My ears have heard of you but now my eyes have seen you." You see, Job wasn't so afraid of God's judgment. God wasn't afraid of his his, uh, punishment, but he was afraid of his absence. He wanted to know that God was still there, that he was carrying him through the difficult times. And friends, God will never leave us. Job had learned that God did not abandon him. Maybe he was silent, but he didn't leave. He was there. What a great encouragement that was for Job. I've seen it. I've seen God. Now I can go on because it doesn't matter how tough my life is. As long as God is there walking with me, I can do it. I can face it. As Moses wraps up his last words with Israel he says to them no one will be able to stand against you all the days of your life as I was with Moses so I will be with you I will never leave you or forsake nor forsake you And we think well that's good old testament theology but wait those words are almost repeated word for word in Hebrews chapter 13 Friends it is a universal fact God has said, I will not leave my children alone. I will be with you. I will be with you through life and bring you to the end where you will see me as, as I am, in John, for, as in First John chapter 2. What a blessing. And friends, if you know Jesus Christ is your personal Savior, that is your hope, that God has not abandoned you and God never lets go. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Father, what a privilege it is to be a part of your family. And Lord, I know that not everyone here can say that. Not everyone here has put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. But for those who have, I know that this is the truth. God has not left us or abandoned us. And for those who have not put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ, I pray, Father, that they would recognize the importance of having a relationship with you and having that living hope that will carry through to eter- through eternity. I pray this in Jesus' name, amen.